Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church. Those of you joining online, we're so grateful that you can be part of this worship experience. And I also want to welcome those watching us from our campus in Northwest Calgary as well. Uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and we are now in a sermon series called The Week That Changed the World. Now, all four Gospels spend considerable time recounting the final week of Jesus' life. In fact, a third of the Gospels put the spotlight on the last few days of Jesus' life that culminates in his death and glorious resurrection. Now, if that is how important the final week of Jesus' life was to the gospel writers, then we need to take the time to study and meditate on it as well. And in this sermon series, we capture some of the key moments from the final week of Jesus' life as presented in Matthew's gospel. Last weekend, Pastor Henry started off this series talking about Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this was the beginning of the historic week that was going to change the course of the world forever. You know, the crowds in Jerusalem turned out to be fickle in their response for, of praise. For the same crowd that cried Hosanna on Palm Sunday would just switch sides within a few days and yell, crucify him. The religious leaders couldn't stand Jesus any longer and plotted to get rid of him. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own disciples, would go on to betray him during this final week. Peter, the one who confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the leader and spokesperson of the disciples, would deny having any relationship with Jesus. The rest of Jesus' disciples, whom Jesus spent three and a half years with, would flee for their lives and abandon him altogether. In the midst of such negative portrayal of characters, there is one shining light, one positive example, one exemplary model of discipleship demonstrated by an unlikely person. Now, this particular individual understands that Jesus had to die, comes to terms with the cross, and in preparation for what was about to unfold, anoints Jesus for his burial even before his death. And this person's actions are juxtaposed with the rest so we can see the contrast. The text that we're going to look at today is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured out on his head as he was reclining at the table. 
When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. To join me in prayer. Lord, we silence our hearts and quieten ourselves so we can listen to your voice. In the midst of the many noises surrounding us, help us, Lord, to be in tune with your voice. In the season of Lent, prepare our hearts so we understand the meaning and the significance of the cross, the agony that you had to go through. Lord, we pray that you will give us insight into the truth of your word, that what we read just now will come alive in our hearts, and you will apply these truths to our lives. We give this time, Lord, to the leading of your spirit. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You all may be seated. If you know that you have only one week to live, you will be very careful what you put in your calendar. You'll be very judicious in the way you use your time. You will decline numerous appointments that don't matter much to you. You'll flatly refuse to spend your time on frivolous things because the prospect of death changes our perspective. Even Jesus, during the final week of his life, was careful who he was spending time with. And knowing that he was going to die, Jesus spent time with those who mattered to him to prepare them for what is going to come. And here, this incident in Bethany is very significant in light of the events that were going to unfold later that week. Now, before we get into the story of this woman and the anointing of Jesus, let's see how Matthew sets up this narrative. Now, the act of loving worship of breaking the alabaster jar and pouring out its contents is bordered by two important texts. So this loving act of devotion is sandwiched between two acts of deceit. Here's the first one. This is the bread on the top of the sandwich. The first part of Matthew 26, verses 1 to 3. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So the first part is about the scheming of the religious leaders. You know, they've had extended conversations with Jesus for over three years, dialogues, debates, Q&As. They've heard Jesus teach in the temple courts. 
But still, the religious leaders were indifferent, and even worse, they were scheming to get rid of Jesus. Now, the last part of our text, the bread on the bottom of the sandwich, is to do with Judas and his betrayal. A Judas made up his mind that he was done with Jesus, done following him. And he knew Jesus was not going to fulfill his expectations. So Judas betrays Jesus, and this is the worst backstabbing in all of history. So much so that the name Judas itself is symbolic of betrayal. If you refer to someone as a Judas, you're talking about their deceitful nature. Today, no one I know knows their, names their kid Judas, even though it is actually a beautiful name in Hebrew. Judas is the same as Judah, which means praise God, but still we refrain from naming our kids Judas. So here is this sandwich in between scheming on the one hand and betrayal on the other, we find this beautiful act of devotion. In my opinion, this is the only time in the final passion week of Jesus' life when someone shows a remarkable understanding of his mission. This is the only person who shares the heart of Jesus and anticipates his death. Who in the world is this unnamed woman who is presented as a model disciple here in the Gospel of Matthew? Now, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John also speak about this same incident and offer us additional details that we can draw from. The Gospel of Luke makes reference to uh, an anointing incident, which is different from the text that we are working with. That incident is about a sinful woman anointing Jesus, and that I don't think is a reference to Mary. But we have here John's gospel and Mark's gospel where we can draw additional details from. You know, from John's gospel, we find out this unnamed woman here in Matthew is none other than Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So let me give you a little bit of context and summarize this episode by drawing details from all the three Gospels that narrate this account. Jesus is once again visiting Bethany, the town of Lazarus, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, Bethany must have been Jesus' favorite place here on earth because he frequently went to the town, and that is because his friends lived there. Lazarus had recently died and was buried in his grave for four days, and Jesus raised him to life. It is an extraordinary story. Now, a dinner was hosted to thank Jesus for his incredible goodness to Lazarus and his family. And they met at the house of Simon the leper, possibly someone who was a former leper who had been healed by Jesus, for if he was still a leper, it would be unlawful for them to have a gathering in his house and have fellowship together. And Simon could have been possibly related to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We do not know. And the house where this party is taking place is packed with people. Many had come just to see the man who had raised, been raised from the dead, Lazarus, because Lazarus had turned into a celebrity. 
And it was a normal custom in those days to anoint the head of a special guest who comes to your home. And it was done with a few drops of perfumed oil. But what Mary did was highly unusual. Matthew's gospel tells us Mary poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Mary did not trickle a few drops here and there. She poured about half a liter of perfume on Jesus' head. And that must have just flowed all the way throughout his body up to his feet. Can you think of applying half a liter of perfume or deodorant spray and going to work? Or people around you will get all kinds of allergic reactions. The element that Mary used is called pure nard. And almost all the Bible commentaries say that uh, this was made from plants that grew in northern India. So it was an expensive perfume. Mary's prized possession. Possibly a family treasure that was just passed from one generation to another. But Mary broke this alabaster jar and poured all of its contents on Jesus. And then she wiped the perfume off Jesus' feet with her hair. And all the people who had gathered in the house were just sitting in stunned silence. There were two reasons why they were so astonished. First of all, it was the cost of the perfume. It was extremely valuable. And secondly, they were stunned by Mary's actions. It was not culturally appropriate for Jewish women to untie their hair in public. But Mary just did not bother about all those cultural restrictions. Her heart was so much in love with Jesus, and she was expressing her heartfelt devotion. Now, there was one individual in that room in particular who was deeply offended by all this. And he strongly objected to Mary's actions. It's none other than Judas Iscariot. Judas severely criticizes Mary's act of worship. In John chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, the parallel passage that we are working with tells us, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, this objection is coming not because Judas cared about the poor, but simply because he's just interested in the money. You know this popular game show called Price is Right, where participants have to guess the price of a merchandise? Judas would have done really well in this show because he's quick to determine the monetary value of the perfume. He figured the perfume was worth one year's wages. Now calculate that for a moment in Canadian dollars. If a person earned a wage of $15 per hour, works 40 hours a week, what would their yearly income be? It'll come close to $30,000. Spending $30,000 just like that seems extravagant, nonsensical. No wonder it brought that kind of reaction. This costly act of worship expressed by Mary 
was not received well. People all around her in that room were highly critical of her. Our text in Matthew says all the disciples were influenced by Judas' opinion and also joined in the criticism. Mary's act spread fragrance in the room, but Judas' words spread such negativity that it influenced everyone there. Our text in Matthew says, in Matthew 26, verses 8 and 9, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. And as the disciples all join in this chorus of criticism, Jesus himself comes to Mary's rescue and defends her actions. Jesus is not saying serving the poor was unimportant. That would contradict the rest of his teachings in the Gospels. God has a special heart for the poor. But Jesus is merely elevating this woman's act of devotion in light of his own imminent death. And the gospel writers often use comparisons to show faith and unbelief, to, to demonstrate what is true and what is counterfeit, what is, who is a true disciple and who is a false disciple. And in this passage, Mary and Judas are presented side by side as a comparison. I want us to first look at Mary's act of devotion and then come to Judas and contrast his actions. What was so significant about this act of anointing? Jesus had already predicted about his upcoming death. This was not something that happened out of the blue, unexpected. At the beginning of our passage, Jesus says this very clearly Matthew 26, 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, is that clear? Any lack of clarity in those words? Jesus very plainly talked about his upcoming death, and this was not the first time. The last time I preached from Matthew 16, we talked about why Peter rebuked Jesus and said, surely these things will not happen to you, Lord. Why does he say that? It is in response to Jesus' words that he will go to Jerusalem, suffer in the hands of the religious leaders, and will be crucified, and he will die. Again, right after Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17, once again it says there in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, when they came together in Galilee, he, Jesus, said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. See, the fact that Jesus was going to be crucified was no secret. Jesus made it plain and obvious. So it wasn't that the 12 disciples were unaware of all of this, but they were unwilling to receive this. God's plan looked so different from the plans that they had conceived in their mind, and that's why they were wrestling with all of this. But Mary is presented as a model disciple. 
If you remember this incident in Luke's gospel, when Martha is busy serving, where is Mary? Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, just hanging on to every word that came from his mouth. And Martha is upset with Mary that she has left all the chores to her and, and she's not doing anything. But Jesus defends Mary and says, Mary has chosen the right path. She is the model disciple. Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to everything he had to say. If Jesus was not being secretive about his mission and talked about it freely with his disciples that his crucifixion was coming up, chances are Mary understood Jesus' plain words. And with this realization that Jesus' death was impending, she broke that expensive alabaster jar of perfume, her prized possession, and she anointed Jesus for his burial. This action was just an overflow of a heart that was so in love with Jesus that recognized his worth and his willingness to give up his life as a sacrifice. Mary knew her offering was little in comparison to Jesus' offering and what he was about to do. Look at Jesus' words as he speaks in support of Mary. Verses 10 to 12 in Matthew 26. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now, Jesus saw the beauty in this offering, not just because it was worth so much, but Jesus could see through that a glimpse of a heart that was so sincere, a heart that wanted to worship him. Jesus was being anointed here in advance for his burial. Now, anointing was an act that was performed on the dead person, but here it is done beforehand, six days prior to Jesus' death. It was a prophetic act on the final week of Jesus' life that pointed so vividly, so clearly to the cross that was just coming. And this act served as a precursor to all of the events that were going to unfold later that week. I read in the Guinness Book of World Records the claim that one of the most expensive perfumes in the world today is called Clive Christian Number no. 1 Imperial Majesty. A 500 ml bottle costs $200,000. Now, apart from its ridiculous price, I was just fascinated by a statement that I came across regarding this particular perfume. And it seems this perfume apparently lasts very long. Well, for $200,000, I think it should last for a million years. But anyway, a reviewer claims that this perfume sticks to your body 
and does not go away even after multiple showers. Expensive perfumes are long-lasting. And I thought about it. Jesus was anointed with half a liter of the best, most expensive perfume of his time from head to toe. And within a few days from that incident, Jesus would be crucified. And I'm sure the fragrance of that perfume lingered with Jesus. And it must have remained all through the time when Jesus was being beaten to a pulp and crucified and nailed on a cross. And that fragrance served as a reminder to Jesus of Mary's devotion. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus endured the agonies of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. The joy that Jesus had in the midst of his own pain and agony was the knowledge that there will be many more worshipers like Mary who will understand his significance, understand his worth, and give themselves to his cause and to his mission. And Jesus commended Mary that day in front of all his male disciples. These were his words. Verse 13. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mary's story is now part of the gospel story. So much so, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, she will be remembered. If you take a step back and look at all of this, this seems like a small, minuscule act of service in the grand scheme of things. Considering the many sacrifices that people have made over history, even to the point of giving their lives for the sake of the gospel, this particular act seems small. But it did not skip Jesus' attention. The 2,000 years have passed by, and we still read and remember throughout the world what Mary had done. Now, our expression of devotion to Jesus may seem so small and so insignificant, but in God's eyes, they hold much meaning. It never escapes his attention, and he uses it for his grand purposes. Mary was a true disciple who grasped the immensity of Jesus' sacrifice and was in turn willing to give her very best, her at most, for his highest. Now look at Judas in contrast. Here's what our text says about Judas. Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. 
Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Jesus recruited him. So for three and a half years, Judas followed Jesus, lived with Jesus, watched him in close proximity. Judas witnessed Jesus' teachings, his ministry, his miracles. He was even commissioned by Jesus to heal, to cast demons and preach the gospel. So Judas was a gospel preacher. And he came back in astonishment like the rest of the disciples. This thing works that demons even listen to us. We have never seen anything like this. Judas was on that boat on the day when there was that great storm. And the disciples were in a perilous situation. But Jesus just calmed the storm right before their eyes. He was there when Jesus took two loaves of bread and a few fish and just fed the multitudes. Judas was entrusted with the money bag and he managed all the donations. In spite of all this, in spite of all this, Judas never allowed the truth to personally impact him. He was so near and yet so far. This is the most striking thing of all. A mystery one just cannot comprehend. How can you be for so long in the presence of the incarnate Son of God, spend three and a half years, day in and day out, up close with Jesus, experience his love so personally, and yet be disillusioned and totally walk away from the faith? How is this possible? Some of you parents with grown-up children who have walked away from the faith live with a sense of guilt. I've talked to so many over the years, and I hear them say, perhaps we should have done a bit more, prayed more, gone to church more, been a better example, done this, I wish we'd have done that, and today they live in such deep remorse and regret that is just eating them from the inside. If that is you, I just want to release you from any such feelings of deep guilt. For if Judas could be with Jesus, the greatest model of how to live the Christian life and still walk away from the faith, it can happen to any one of us. So let go of the guilt. There are some things that are not in our hands. There are some things that we simply don't understand. Now listen to me. Every person is responsible for their choices. I'm telling you, we can immerse ourselves in the Christian faith. Church programs, youth group, Christian school, Christian friends. We can be so close to the truth and yet so far away and never allow the truth to personally impact our lives. That is a great warning. 
exemplified here in our text through the life of Judas. But Judas was an apostate, somebody who never really understood what it means to follow Jesus and eventually just walked away. And sadly, there are so many people like that in our churches, so near and yet so far from the truth. Here's a question. Have you ever wondered why did Judas betray Jesus? What was the motive? Judas realized that Jesus was not the Messiah that he had hoped for, that he was not going to overthrow Rome, that Jesus was not going to meet the popular messianic expectations, and that led to disillusionment, deep sense of disappointment. And Judas must have reasoned I've given three years of my life for nothing. Let me at least get something out of it, even if it's just 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. That is only one-third of the value of the perfume that Mary poured on Jesus. The price of a slave in those days. Here's the fundamental difference between Mary and Judas. This is what it all boiled down to. Mary understood Jesus' mission that he had to die. Judas could never come to terms with it. The cross became a stumbling Block. Embracing the cross is a non-negotiable for the Christian life because the Christian life is a cross-shaped life. And the cross will continue to be a stumbling block even today. It serves as that point of separation between a Christian and someone who's not willing to be a follower of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes it so powerfully. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We who believe see the cross as a powerful demonstration of God's strength. It arrests our attention, and we are blown away by the implications of that. You cannot understand the character of God outside of the cross of Christ. And when you come to terms with it, you become like Mary. You give yourself entirely to Jesus, wholeheartedly, ungrudgingly. You do not want to withhold anything from him. You're stunned by what Jesus has done personally for you. You're enamored by his glory. Your heart is captivated by Jesus' love. 
And your only rightful fitting response is, Lord, all I am and all I have is yours. I lay my life at your feet. I want to live a life that exalts you. Use me. Use my gifts. Use my resources. Use everything I have to make your name great. We can be like Mary and follow in this path of full devotion. Or you can be a Judas. The cross makes no sense. It's too difficult. It's too challenging. I can't deny myself, pick up the cross and follow Jesus. I want nothing to do with it. You know, when you understand the message of Jesus, you will give your life completely to him or you will abandon him altogether. But there is no middle ground. There is no passive response, no sitting on the fence. You have to make a choice one way or the other. So let me ask you, which way is your life headed? Are you walking in the path of discipleship that will lead you to a life of full surrender? Or are you walking in a different direction that will take you farther and farther away from Christ? I want us to just close our eyes for a moment. Just reflect on that very question. What's the direction of your life? Which way are you headed? Are you going closer and closer to Jesus or are you walking farther and farther away from Him? And this is a time for you, if you feel convicted, to respond. To ask God to once again open your eyes to the power of the cross, to the significance of Jesus' death, and to say once again, Lord, the only fitting response for me is to give myself fully and completely to you. Let's maintain a moment of silence. Those of you watching us online, I want to encourage you as well to reflect on that question the direction of your life. And God is convicting you. This is an opportunity for you to do a course correction, to be able to say, I want to run closer to Jesus. I pray that many of you will make the decision. This season of Lent is a great opportunity for us to reflect on the cross and to gladly take up our own cross, deny ourselves, and follow him in this path of discipleship. So let's maintain a moment of silence and respond to the promptings of the Spirit. And after that, I want to pray for us.
Lord, we thank you for embracing the cross. You were so determined to go in one direction towards the cross where you paid the price for our sins. And it is because of that act of sacrifice, your amazing grace has reached out to us. Our eyes have been opened to the truth of who you are. Our chains have been broken and we are free. We have joy, we have peace, we have new life, we have a purpose, we have a reason for living. All of that comes from the cross. And even as we recognize the significance of that, we give ourselves to you. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Everything, Lord, we have is yours. Use our life to fulfill your purposes. Every day of our life, may we have you at the center and the forefront of our living. So even during the season of Lent, take us closer, closer and closer to your heart. Like Mary, we will become worshipers who will gladly give up everything, even our prized possessions, for the joy of knowing you, Jesus. We pray these things in your most powerful name. Amen.